This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here today with Paul Nagai. Paul, thank you so much for being with us. Jeffrey, thank you. Exciting to be here. And uh, glad to be on. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell our listeners first who you are and uh, where you're from? Sure, absolutely. So a little bit of background. My primary uh, kind of area of focus is really around uh, business transformation for commercial credit providers. And a big part of that has certainly been in the mortgage industry over the last 20 years, where we've had the opportunity to help people do a lot of different uh, change, whether that's for growth, whether that's for efficiency, whether that's entering different parts of the marketplace. And so that's been very exciting. And in terms of kind of how I got there, I really started my career in the consulting space uh, quite a few years ago now. (laughs) Then did that for about 11 years, where I had the opportunity to work not only with a number of large consumer banks, helping them to uh, do a variety of things, including mergers, acquisitions, uh, different types of process optimization work. And eventually, uh, during that part of my career, got into the consumer credit space and more specifically in mortgage, where I was able to help a number of different companies as they went through uh, sort of the changes that happened in the uh, early 2000s and late 90s. And uh, then after that, decided to join industry, uh, went to work for an investment bank for a couple of years as part of their fixed income and uh, mortgage division, and then joined a consumer bank after that as part of an acquisition which uh, allowed me to really spend a fair amount of time. This was during the sort of 2008 timeframe, really allowed me to work very closely in the default space where we worked through all the home affordable modification programs, if you recall those. And then in 2010, I went back into consulting for one of the, the big four consulting firms and really helped build out their mortgage and consumer banking practice uh, here in the New York area, which is where I'm located. And then a couple of years ago, a group of us decided to jump out on our own. And we've been doing that since uh, about the 2020 timeframe. And it's been you know, really a lot of, lot of fun to work with both the larger institutions as well as 
spend time with the upcoming uh, fintechs that are out there helping them to not only position themselves in the market, but uh, obviously just to uh, build their products um, and and help them uh, position for growth. Interesting. Yeah, interesting progression and, and career, uh, as well as the experience with one of the big four consulting firms and just the whole weaving fabric of you know what brought you to where you are today. So one of my questions that I ask every guest, it's really related to your entrepreneurial habits that have experienced success for you throughout all these different situations, careers, journeys. And so that question is, what is the single most important action that you take on a daily basis that you attribute most to your success? You know, that's a great question. And I think that it's something we, you know, kind of probably adjust through our careers. But I would say the one that's really been constant is just reading and Mm. constant learning. Uh, For me, at least, it's very interesting to really check out what's, you know, what's current. Uh, So I read a number of different uh, newspapers, a number of different uh, industry publications on a regular basis. When I have access to it, I, I read a lot of the news feeds uh, that come through different uh, services, the different news clipping services. And, you know, from my perspective, just really keeping ahead of the curve in terms of technology, in terms of what the market's doing, and what the factors are that really influence the market are very interesting uh, and certainly very important to anticipating where my work is going to go uh, and where my clients are going to go and what's going to be important to them uh, and what they're going to want information about. So I would say reading is probably the most important thing that I do on a daily basis to stay current and to, you know, that I would attribute to my success. Okay. That makes sense. And it seems like the reading that you suggested was more current events, consumer reports, things of that nature. Uh, Do you also have any great books that you would recommend? There are so many good books. I love to read some of the business biographies, uh, you know, the the long-term capital management story, I think, is always interesting. Guess uh, where genius failed, and I, I definitely like to read a number of the business books that give you insight both into the history and just stories that people have gone through in their careers, as well as some of the methodology types of books. There's a, a really interesting book that I always recommend to to folks called The Knowing doing gap and and how you know how you kind of turn information into action and it's an older book but it's got you know great points to it that are relevant today as as much today as they were in the past uh, and really focuses on how do you take great ideas and turn those into real products turn those into real action turn those into market activity and of course, that's always easier said than done and takes a lot of discipline, I think, in, uh, in successful companies to do it. Absolutely. And being a consultant for one of the big four and being able to work with you know, clients that most people wouldn't have access to, it gives you an interesting perspective on that exact topic, on you know, looking at products, looking at markets, bringing them to market in an effective way, managing teams. And so, you know, I'm really curious to, to learn 
with the projects that you might be working on today, I, I think you're helping some fintech companies to, you know, better either position their product or come to market. You know, what, what's the, the big trend there as far as something that you see come up often? You know, maybe it's more like internal culture it's, or it's the lack of product market fit. So um, I, I just know that from reading very vast variety of books, it seems like many entrepreneurs create a product where there's no market. <laughs> Uh, yeah. They don't do the market research and testing prior to. They think they dream up something that they think is cool and they bring it to market and no one buys it. So I would really love to just hear your perspective on you know that that whole startup fintech area and and seeing so many companies that that you've seen throughout the years. I do think that you hit on such an important point there, and it's actually an area where we spend a fair amount of time with uh, companies. There is such a proliferation of great technology today. So many new things coming on to, you know, coming into the market, coming online and the technologies that are out there, whether it be, you know, basic things like workflow or whether it be the more advanced things like artificial intelligence. There's a lot of new technologies that are continuing to enter the market, but the, the real challenge has always been aligning those with a business need. And so we do spend a fair amount of time with people just helping them understand and the way we position it is what problem are they trying to solve? And it's very important to, you know, really think through that. And I think you, you made a, an interesting observation that there, there do seem to be a lot of technologies that don't necessarily find a place in the market because they're not solving a problem uh, and they might be interesting, but they're, they're not doing something, at least not currently that mm -hmm. people want to be done. Now, I do caution people against uh, sort of ignoring or dismissing some of those technologies that people don't understand yet, uh, because I certainly think that through history, we've seen a number of examples where products have been brought to market that people didn't really know that they wanted them or needed them until they saw them. And, and, and once they did, they said, you know, wow, I, I'm not sure how I ever lived without a smartphone. And so there's, there's that as well, but it, um, it can take time to get there for that to mature and frankly, for the market to mature around it as well. So I think that there's a lot of things today where there's a tremendous amount of buzz. And I think the biggest one is probably artificial intelligence. A lot of buzz around that today, and there are aspects of that technology that are very mature and are you know well known, and they've been around for a while and just now sort of reach their potential. And then there are other aspects that probably have a few years to go before they're mature enough to be useful, and you know to some extent that is also impacted by the ability of the you know regulatory community to catch up with the, the technology as well. So certain things that you know we've seen people focus on like automated underwriting and you know, automated valuation models and things like that that have great potential and probably work very well, but are still a little bit difficult to explain. 
And when it comes time for a you know compliance person or team to evaluate whether or not that tool is working as designed or what that design is, it can be a little bit more difficult to explain uh, than, than some of the more traditional methods. And so I think things like that will also always be a little bit of a uh, a weight, if you will, on on some of the newer technologies. Having said that, there's other ones uh, that are, you know, have been around forever, frankly, and today they just hit, have reached sort of their potential uh, due to a combination of processing power and you know surrounding support. And the one I think of the most that we actually did some work on recently is around document processing. And this has been an area, particularly in the mortgage industry and in consumer credit more broadly, that's been very challenging for people for many years. Uh, the ability to you know, read different income documentation and things like that and pull off the information that you need. And historically, that's been very manual. And it's taken large teams of people to pull that information together and then evaluate it. And some of the capabilities today are starting to really make progress in terms of automating that, whether that's through things like intelligent OCR, which is the extraction of information off of uh, document images, or whether it's the use of different machine learning capabilities to more quickly recognize and extract that information. And I think both of those while there are capabilities that have been in place for a few years, they're now starting to reach that maturity phase where they can be reliable uh, and used by people and really, you know, really contribute to the overall efficiency of an operation. So that I think those things are great. There's some other ones that are probably going to take a little bit longer, particularly those that... Well, uh, I want to stop you there really quickly yeah. because I have a follow-up question based sure. on the the first example that you gave of some newer products that, you know, maybe, maybe they're artificial intelligence, blockchain, uh, certain products that certainly have great potential in use. However, they have yet to be adopted by the majority. Laws haven't caught up yet. And, you know, my question there, I had two of them and I wasn't sure which one to ask first. And then at the end something that you said prompted me to ask this one first. Do you think it's more of a messaging problem at times than a um, understanding or you know compliance problem? And I say that because Simon Sinek talks about the law of innovation adoption and how there's the early majority on a bell curve. And then you know there's the innovators, early majority, and then the majority and all these things. And in that discussion, he was talking about how the companies that really get to the point where they receive that mass market acceptance. They're the ones who are leading with the message of why they're doing what they're doing. And their messaging is really tight and on point and belief-based. Like, I believe in this greater future that we can do this X, Y, Z, faster, better, um, more humanely, whatever. And by leading with that messaging, it helps to then propel them into that majority to where the laws change and things really shift later. So my question really is about how important is messaging uh, when, when you're coming to product to market with a new product um, that might be extremely innovative? And like you said, it's kind of hard to explain. Um, I just wanted to focus on on that messaging aspect for a moment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think 
Simon is a really interesting guy in terms of the focus on why, right? Why do you do something? And, and that being a, a big driver of your sales message. And I do think it's very important. And it's it clearly messaging is very important from any type of product communication standpoint. And I've, it's, you know, there are certain products that are very clear about what their value is, why you would want it, right? Uh, and there are other products that are maybe not as clear about that. But I think in this case, I'm not sure it's as much of a, a messaging challenge. Uh, I think it's a understanding challenge uh, for some of these tool sets. The value is actually quite clear on most of them. The challenge to date has really been the ability to deliver that value. Mm. And so, you know, and if anything, the providers have probably, you know, and again, I don't want to say they're, they're doing something wrong with, but they may have oversold the capability a little bit. And because that's happened for the last, you know, five to 10 years, the buyers tend to be a little bit more skeptical of whether or not some of the, you know, some of the products can actually deliver what they, what they say they can deliver. So I think they have their, their messaging, right. I think their delivery probably needs a little work. And then on the back end, when you think about the ability to regulate and apply compliance to some of these tool sets, that's where the bar goes up a little bit in terms of being able to prove that what you say is is what you really have. You know, one of the key sort of doctrines that's being discussed a lot right now are is the concept of, uh, you know, disparate impact. And disparate impact is really where a model or a process or a methodology tends to treat one group differently than another group even though that may not be the intended fact, uh, or intention of that model. And the result, though, is what really matters. And the result is what certainly policymakers, uh, lawmakers are looking at. And because of that, it's very important that people understand what aspects of their tools are creating a disparate impact and you know just by you know factor that was unplanned or if there was indeed something within the model that that biased it one way or the other so i think that's very important and there's a, there's a ton of you know visibility and transparency on this today that hasn't necessarily been there in the past um you know in in the past the the focus was really on on the the concept of you know, disparate intent, and that's very different. So that's where you intentionally bias a model or a decision on a factor that, you know, moves it one way or the other, as opposed to not intentionally doing it, but having it end up there anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we've seen, you know, I think we've even seen that in some recent news about uh, the the uh, models that uh, say Amazon was using for its uh, HR decisions, where they found that there were some biases in it, even though they hadn't been designed that way. Got it. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting topic. 
And mentioning some of these newer, more advanced technologies, machine learning, um, HR modeling, things like this, you know, in the real estate industry, where do you think things are heading? Like in five to 10 years, what do you think the real estate transaction will look like? What, you know, where do you think the markets are going? I'd, I'd love to hear your projections. Yeah, I think there's a couple of really interesting things going on from a mortgage perspective, specifically. Uh, one is that the application process, the underwriting process will be highly automated in a few years. It'll be interesting to see whether it'll be 100% automated or not. There are certainly challenges that I think are less about the industry and much more around the policies. I, you know, I think about the fact that there's over 3,100 counties in the U.S. And of those counties, you know, there are still some that, that don't uh, allow recording to be done you know, electronically. And so you know, this is going to be an issue, and, and you may have all but two that are, uh, but you still have those two then to deal with. And so from a technology perspective, we could be much more automated than we are today. And I think that over the next couple of years, we'll see that catch up. Ironically, the, the pandemic really helped, frankly, that process. It helped to accelerate that, that digital process and the movement towards remote types of activities, whether that be you know, notarization or whether that be signing documents. And so that's been good because those things will be able to continue through. And so I think this period of time really accelerated some of that. And now we're sort of left with the few areas that just have not adopted technology in general. Uh, some of the things that I mentioned earlier in terms of document processing, that's going to be an area where uh, you know, the real estate industry will benefit tremendously from an efficiency and speed perspective. I think there's also, I uh, had a discussion the other day where the adoption of technologies like Plaid and Yodely, which are those you know, aggregators of your financial information, have really grown their participation dramatically over the last couple of years. And that's helped, uh, that will help tremendously when it comes to ease of applying for credit in the future. So I think all those things are very good. The blockchain topic is kind of interesting. You, you brought that up. There's really a, a lot of opportunity uh, for that technology in real estate. And we've had discussions with people around a number of different areas that they're looking at, whether that be NFTs, uh, which could potentially be attached to real estate in the future. You know, the one that I love to envision, but I'm not sure where where it is in the marketplace, would be leveraging blockchain for title, for example, where you know once you confirm a title, you could put it out there on a on a public ledger, and and then you could really speed up the process of transferring that to different owners. So I do think that the blockchain technology will have a positive impact uh, in the mortgage space. Uh, and initially, probably the area we've seen it really expand the quickest uh, is in the use of, or I should say the creation of blockchain-based assets. And one of the, you know, one of the major participants in that space right now is doing that for home equity loans, where they have those out on a blockchain that can then be traded. So the ability to trade loans 
using blockchain technology will certainly expand the market in the in the next couple of years. Yeah, it's interesting. And you mentioned it, blockchain's a public ledger. And the philosophy there is that there is nothing lost in translation. It's you can see every single transaction that has occurred. So when there's a transfer of ownership, everyone in the world can see it's very easy to prove and it creates a, a level of transparency that that just isn't available today. It's interesting how that might also relieve clouds on title and certain title issues that do come up later when you're you know coming across distressed properties or properties that have been high, you know handed down through trusts or generations. It can get kind of messy of who owns what, how much. And so you know blockchain, not only is it is it digital, but it's also a public ledger that would be supported and transparent. So a uh, very interesting technology that uh, I have heard of some whispers of, you know, title being started to transfer through blockchain or, or Bitcoin or NFTs and things of that nature and, and using that newer technology just very rarely, but uh, I have heard, heard some whispers of it. So it, I do anticipate that being a major part of the transaction in the future as well. It's yeah, interesting, that, you know, go ahead. uh, yeah, I, I just think about companies like Tesla, you know, are they re- reinventing the car buying experience? That's probably the second largest purchase someone will make nowadays. You know, an average SUV or something is like seventy, eighty thousand dollars um, And, you know, to, to think about how much that price has inflated from, you know, back even just 20, 30 years ago, it's certainly correlated with the increase in house prices, um, how they've just inflated so much. And the median income, if you look at those graphs, hasn't inflated that much more, but also the availability of the, uh, very inexpensive money, uh, the, the Fed offering rates you know, very, very low to then let these dealerships offer these crazy car loans and things like that. Uh, very interesting topic there, but more focused on how Tesla has reinvented the car buying experience. I find that interesting when it relates to the real estate transaction, uh, because Although a new car is not the same as a used house, and there are a lot more intricacies and little things that can go wrong here and there with a house that's been lived in for 30 years as opposed to a brand new Tesla off the lot, there has been some first principles innovation in the entire car creation and car buying experience that have fundamentally shifted the car industry. So I, I think that you know with, with major companies, looking at real estate as, as one of those next industries to disrupt. It's, it's just a matter of time before the real estate transactions is reinvented as we know it. Right. No, you, you bring up a great point. And I like the discussion around Tesla because it is an intersection of both innovation in a delivery mechanism and a technology as well as policy. And I think one of the things that unfortunately many technology companies uh, either struggle with or neglect to look at is that intersection with policy. And in fact, there was a, I think an announcement just a couple of weeks ago that the you know consumer protection CFPB is going to be looking more closely at non-bank fintechs in the coming years. And so that's going to dramatically change the kind of focus and structure of how they do business. And I think one of the interesting things about the Tesla is that they, you know, were able to go direct to consumers, which was frankly a, a policy victory. And mm-hmm. for other car companies to do that, it will disintermediate sort of the 
concept of the dealer and some of the the state laws around who can actually sell cars. Right. So there was a, you know, there was a tremendous uh, policy decision that that helped to make that successful. And and frankly, I mean, he he's done a a phenomenal job of really taking advantage of uh, different policy anomalies in his overall business model. I mean, the the tax credits you get on electric cars, the fact that you can sell uh, carbon credits to companies that don't have good mileage and things like that. So those have all contributed to the overall success of that business model. And I think it's been you know, really quite genius the way that, that he's pulled that all together. So in terms of the, you know, how, how does that translate to the mortgage industry? I think that we will see uh, some innovation, but it will be coupled with those policy changes. And, you know, it's really interesting to me to just see through the history of the housing market, how policy has really impacted, you know, the buying experience, the, the uptake. I was looking at uh, some of the, you know, numbers around home ownership rates. And if we think back to when the, you know, Fannie and Freddie were created, the government sponsored enterprises, there were goals around home ownership that, you know, as a, as a nation, we've never achieved those goals. And we've always sort of sat around a, you know, 55% home ownership rate. I think it got all the way up to 60 some percent uh, a few years ago, and then it fell again. And so there's, there's could be a question around, is there a sort of a natural place where that home ownership rate should sit? to allow for both uh, flexibility and mobility, uh, as well as to take into account just the, the changing demographic of the, of the uh, buying community. So policies aren't always aligned you know, with what's most efficient for the market. Uh, and so I do think that a lot of the, you know, to get that last mile, if you will, of efficiency in the mortgage market is gonna require some adjustment to public policy for sure. For sure. And I would argue that public policy reacts. It comes after. And I mean, the Dodd-Frank Act is a perfect example of that. The mortgage industry was offering way too risky of loans for two or three decades. We had the 2007-8 financial crisis. New policy comes in to, to restrict that. And then on the opposite side, you know, with technological innovation, the ability to reduce the paper that, that is used in this paper heavy transaction, uh, cut down less trees, you know, the, maybe the offset we discover of running blockchain for every single transaction on earth and real estate, as opposed to cutting down the amount of trees it takes to print all the paper for all those is right. just, you know, one to hundred percent difference Then all of a sudden, okay, that lines up with sustainability. And then this new policy to do real estate transactions through blockchain is is now supported and you get a 1% discount on your real estate purchase if you do the blockchain transaction. And then some lenders support that. Like I totally agree with you that it's overlooked often when tech companies are coming to market. And I'm I'm also very in tune with this because you know I have a marketing agency in the real estate space. And for me, I'm much more of a copywriter, marketer. I want to think about messaging. I want to think about you know the product, the market, what's the market's desires and needs. I'm not a law guy. I'm not thinking about policy and how could we be supported or hindered by current policy? Um, right. Should we be lobbying for a certain policy or is one already being lobbied that would help us and we could help support it? I, that's not even on my radar. 
So I, right. I think it's very common for, for that to not be on the radar of many other startups as well. And I think that that's actually beneficial to some extent. And then what, let me explain what I mean by that. It's very easy to, you know, dismiss good ideas because they haven't been done. And mm. usually the reason they haven't been done is because there's some, you know, rule, regulation, history, tradition that has prevented them from being done in the past. And so I, you know, I certainly encourage people to think more with a white sheet of paper and say, if it were, you know, if you could draw it up from scratch and it worked the way that you'd like it to work, how would that be? And then focus on, you know, getting the rules adjusted to either accommodate it or to account for it is probably the better word, is a better path than, you know, trying to sort of weave your way through all the rules first, because uh, you, you may never get to a solution at all. And, and, and so a lot of great, a lot of great ideas would probably get shut down very quickly if you started by trying to weave through all the rules. Uh, so I think it's best to start with a great idea and then figure out what rules you know, will impact it. Can they be changed? Should they be changed? Are there minor tweaks you can make to accommodate them? That's probably the, the, the path to innovation. I agree with you. And what rules should be changed is maybe the one that comes up most because if you start with a great idea, but it hasn't been done because of some policy, well, that policy might be outdated. It might be, you know, might've been persuaded by something in the past that is no longer relevant. And, and it's very important to not be restricted by that. So I agree. I mean, I never resonated with the thought that, oh, everything's been invented. I, I heard that in college, like, oh, you know, you have an idea, go Google it. It's been done or tried. You know, you shouldn't even try anything. It's like, well, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. We're always constantly innovating. And to have that type of closed off mindset would kind of be the same as looking at all these laws restricting business or, oh, it's really difficult to do business in California with the taxes and the, and the restrictions. You shouldn't even try it. It's like, well, you can still make it work. You could still, and, and maybe if you do find some innovation or success and there's something unjust being done based on policy, you could then lobby to change it. And there's some things that could be done later. Uh, but I agree that, you know, start with the inspiration and idea and protect, fan that flame, <laughs> let it, let right. it blossom, get, get feedback, continue it to grow it and get it to a critical mass point to where then it could be important enough to influence policy. Um, great topic, though. This is never talked about the whole policy aspect. Yeah, and I think that you know you you hit on an interesting point, which is there is kind of that belief that everything has been thought of and everything's been created, and there's probably a little bit of reality to that, which is most ideas probably have been conceived. But back to our earlier topic around the books. Uh, one of the biggest disconnects that I personally see is that having a great idea and creating something from that are wildly different, wildly, wildly different. different. And, you know, a lot of people can say, wow, why don't we do this? But the actions required to do that are monumental. Uh, that make the, it was what There's an old saying, I think, something about, you know, success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And that applies today for sure, which is it's very easy to come up with great ideas, but it's very difficult to implement those ideas. And right. so I, I, you know, I, I agree with you. There's probably a, a ton of good ideas that are out there already that just, you know, 
for whatever reason, they haven't, you know, haven't made it yet to, uh, to fruition. And not to mention technology, you know, technology might not be caught up to the point where that idea could be reality, but based on, you know, the Silicon chip reducing in size every, however many years and the exponential increase of technology, maybe in three years, it could be possible. And an example of that is virtual reality. Virtual reality is something that today, because pretty much the bandwidth of the networks can only support up to 4K. Well, when you split that 4K to 360 degrees, really it breaks it down to standard definition of about 720. So then you're, you put on this headset and you look around and it's all pixelated and it's not that great. But right. you advance a couple of years and now we can support 16K. Well, at that point, if you can, based on 5G or 6G, and data network, not even relying on Wi-Fi, if you can instantaneously with zero latency stream 16K across the world, well, you could put on a virtual headset, there'd be zero lag and it would be sharper than your eye could see essentially. So now it's a, it's a compelling product, right? But it's the only difference is that technology caught up. I think that applies to so many other you know, mortgage products that are coming to market across the board. You know, not, it's not only policy, but it's also you know, technology catching up and allowing these, like you said, processing power, server power, uh, those types of infrastructure environments. Well, you're absolutely right. And the topic we talked on before around document processing is a perfect example. The technologies and the mathematical algorithms for doing optical character recognition and even the machine learning concepts have really been in place. I mean, they've been in the academic world for probably 30 years or more more than that. And, but the processing power has only recently become available to make that a reality. Mm. And when you think about the fact that the technology that was used to, you know, send the Apollo astronauts to the moon was, was less sophisticated than what we have in our pocket today by many magnitudes, many magnitudes of advancement. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we have the ability to do things now from an edge computing perspective, which is, you know, doing the processing near the, near the endpoint, like the device. We have the ability to do that now where, you know, that just frankly didn't exist even 10 years ago. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's going to make things, I think, very exciting. You know, in the real estate space, uh, from a technology perspective, kind of outside of the lender and the mortgage companies, it's something that's it's been super interesting for me to see is the use of satellite views, right? To, to really understand property, people are using satellite much more effectively now to understand the risk of whether it's geological or weather risk around a specific region. Uh, so you have that whole branch of technology the use of drones and you know high quality imaging to do home inspections now i mean that kind of thing could absolutely uh revolutionize that entire transaction process so i think those and and those are things that to your point you know a drone the entire system sits on a single chip now and so it's you know, it's very simple for anybody to do it uh, and it makes it very inexpensive. And so now you start to see lots and lots of great ideas. One of the interesting ones I saw recently was there was a, 
there was a tower built here in the city. And as part of the marketing effort, they wanted to be able to show the view that you would have from each floor of the unit. And so they took a drone and at different altitudes were able to do 360 degree views of what you would see in the city. And that's an extremely powerful marketing tool uh, that they could do before there was even, you know, one brick leg. So, yeah, I, th- I think the, the technologies won't just be the transaction itself. It'll be all the surrounding uh, things. And, you know, for me personally, growing up having to you know mow the yard, the fact that you now have robotic lawnmowers and things like that is going to you know change the way home ownership works as well. So right. yeah, it's a very exciting time. Very exciting time to be alive. So is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to expand upon from earlier? Yeah, I, I mean, I, we can go whatever direction you like here, frankly, and, and there's a lot of great things to uh, talk about. I do think that one of the things that might be worthwhile covering is really just what's going on in the market today. I mean, obviously, we've got really a confluence of activities, that being inflation, you know, rates, some some kind of global geo, you know, geopolitical instability that are all convening you know, along with a pandemic to really impact the the housing market. And I look at it uh, from a couple of different uh, perspectives. There's sort of the supply of housing uh, and that side of the market. And the builder community is certainly experiencing a lot of challenges from both labor, supply chain, uh, and those things are reducing you know, the ability, not only the ability to build new homes, um, but of course the overall supply. So that's going to have, and we think that that'll probably have an impact for at least another year or so until things start to get back to normal. On the, you know, inflation front, uh, this is something that is, you know, very likely to impact uh, two different things. One is just buying decisions in general. And secondly, you know, credit worthiness. So, and we've had a lot of, you know, again, policy and and different types of accommodations over the last two years that have really helped the quality of credit and allowed people to uh, stay in their homes and and stay current on their on their mortgages. But as inflation starts to creep up there, you know, that's likely to impact the ability to maintain some of that, that credit worthiness. So we expect that to be a bit of an impact. And obviously with rates going up, that's always one of the the biggest drivers of demand for credit. Uh, And so that's going to probably price a lot of people out of the market that are already dealing with sort of, you know, high home prices due to limited supplies. One of the interesting things though, that we feel is a positive is that there has been well, you can look at it as a positive or a negative, depending on which side of the, the coin you're on. But the expansion of rental homes uh, certainly gives people an option that they didn't necessarily have before. And so uh, we, we think that that will help to moderate some of the, the price challenges that people have that are looking for homes in a little bit larger space. But in general, I think this year and probably going into next year, 
we certainly expect this, you know, confluence of external impacts to have a pretty significant impact on the home market overall. And in some markets, we will probably start to see some price declines as a result of that. And in other markets, it'll continue to grow. So, Awesome. Great points. And uh, I would love to ask how listeners can contact you if they're interested in learning more. Yeah, absolutely. People can either contact us uh, at our at our uh, general info box, which is just info at the Antares company.com. Uh, we also have a, a Twitter channel that we try to keep some interesting things on called Ontario's Global. So both of those would be great ways to get in contact with us. Awesome. Well, Paul and the guy, I really appreciate having you on today. And this was a conversation that uh, I haven't had before about you know, policy, technology, adoption of, of, you know, both and the evolution of both. So I uh, re- really appreciate having you on, having a, a very thought-provoking conversation regarding real estate, the mortgage industry moving forward into the 2020s and beyond. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.